This is the Six Figure Creative Podcast, episode 193. Welcome to the Six Figure Creative Podcast, where our mission is to help you turn your creative passions into a stable, reliable income. If you're in audio, video, design, photography, or really any other creative field, and you just want to learn from other successful creatives, you're in the right place. Welcome back to another episode of the Six Figure Creative Podcast. I am your host, Brian Hood, and today... We have a very wonderful guest that was actually a recommendation of a past guest we had on the podcast, which are some of my favorite guests, because usually when we have an awesome guest on the podcast, they recommend the best guests. So Rachel from Green Chair Stories recommended our guest today, Lydia Kerr from Telltale Designs. And Lydia's got an awesome business because she's a designer earning multiple six figures a year. And she just started four years ago. And I feel like our audience is going to get a lot out of this because she did the thing that I think is the hardest way to do this, which is she had one foot in a day job that she didn't like, another foot in her design business, trying to match the income of her day job and try to build those at the same time. So while maintaining her day job, she's building her business on the side. And this is the area that I think some people struggle with because they can't figure out how to strike that balance. And I think she did an awesome job of that. And then from there, she scaled it to multiple six figures a year in less than four years. So she's got a lot of cool things that she's doing in her design business. And that's, by the way, anyone listening right now, I cannot think of a more competitive environment than the design world. The audio world is not as competitive. The photography world is, okay, that's probably about as competitive, but the design world is incredibly saturated. And Lydia has done a great job of making a name for herself and going from charging like $200 projects to now she's charging ten dollars to $20,000 for projects. So this interview is a treat and I can't wait for you to get into it. So without further intro, here is my interview with Lydia Kerr of Telltale Designs. I'm here with a wonderful guest today, owner of Telltale Design Company, which is a multiple six-figure design agency based out of Colorado. And uh, it's funny, we actually connected with you through one of our past guests, Rachel from Green Chair Stories. Um, you, ha- you are like basically worked together in this whole wonderful referral network. We'll get into that later in this interview. But um, I wanted to bring you on, on the show today because you have a lot of great stuff in your background that I think is incredibly relevant to our audience as people are trying to transition out of a day job they may consider less than ideal or maybe soul sucking. If it is that bad, um, you have a no. similar story <laughs> where you came, yeah, where you came from a a day job that you did not love is the way you put it. You would say not quite soul sucking, but it was headed that direction. And I would love to hear the story of how you transitioned from a day job to a part time design company to now you're up to the six multiple six figure a year mark as a designer. And I think it's fascinating to hear how these people like you transitioned out of a day job that what I call the, the old way of making a living where you worked at the same company for you know 20 years, like back in the 60s, 70s, and then you retire, 50 years, retire from the same company. That was your track. You said, no, 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 not for me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plant my flag on the ground and launch my own design business. But you didn't do it the, the dangerous way of just jumping ship. You did it slowly and surely. And I'd love to pick up the story there where you decided, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. I want to do this. I want to work for myself. Yeah, totally. First of all, thank you so much for having me. So happy to be here. And yeah, so kind of picking up there, I got what felt like a dream job right out of school. It was for a company that I was really excited about and had a long history with. And I was a marketing director for all the United States and all of Canada, which also felt just like a really big job out of school. And I found out the day that I got hired, like when I was filling out all of my, you know, like onboarding paperwork that the company had been purchased, but they couldn't legally tell me that until I was an employee. So I walked in blind, essentially, without knowing that that's what I was doing. And so essentially, the job that I had been hired to do was managing all of the creative stuff. And then it shifted to a job where I was managing other creatives. 
And I love to work with people, but very, very quickly overnight, really my job, I stopped being the one who was creative and I just was managing other people who were being creative. And so that was soul sucking, as you said. Um, and so essentially the transition, um, I kind of started, I did like some wedding invitation designs for people here and there, like no trajectory, just people who knew I could dabble. Um, and then more and more people started asking. It was like a website here, a logo here. I mean, I had no idea what I was doing. And then at a certain point, I was doing enough of it just purely by word of mouth that I was like, I think I can make this something. So I threw up a super simple website, again, had no idea what I was doing and started to kind of promote a little bit more, started an Instagram account and, and really was just amazed by the word of mouth network of other people who were starting something in some capacity and needed a small logo or a small website or a random wedding invitation or a t-shirt design. Like I would do anything at that point. And my husband and I were just at a point where I had recently graduated. We were like, you know, poor young 20 year olds and did not have, there was not an option for me to just like wake up and quit my job one day. And so my goal essentially was matching my income at my full-time job. And as soon as I did that, I quit. And then I, then I quickly realized that like, oh, I matched the number, but I had not accounted for taxes and expenses and you know how it goes. But that's, that's sort of the like quick overview and lay of the land. I would say the overlap was probably... Well, I told them I quit and then I kind of like got roped in the thing for another couple of months and I wanted to finish strong. So all in all, the overview or the overlap was probably about like three to four months. And then I hit the ground running in 2018 was when I actually quit, quit my job. So four years of being full-time at this point and I've loved it ever since. And, and really just, I feel like it sounds cliche to say this, but really cannot believe that this is what it turned into because it was so not what I intended. So I would say like, to anybody who's listening, if if it's something that you know you're dabbling in, that was totally where I was and was not in a place of thinking I was building a business. And something that I love to talk about that I can share, you know, in a bit if it feels relevant, Brian, is the difference between freelancing and owning a business. And at first, when I was doing this overlap, I very much was a freelancer, and then that kind of shift into I, I'm I'm a business owner, I'm a CEO really happened when I made that that jump into full time. I, I mean, I definitely want to get to that, but I, I do want to address that transition because it's one thing to hear like kind of the quick breezed over story of like, I was, you know, I was hired at this job that was a dream job. And then it kind of changed because they were acquired and then it it slowly kind of went downhill. And then while I decided I wanted to maybe design one day, I launched this side thing that just took off. You know, it's, it's fun to, to hear the story, but in the thick of it, it's not that easy. And I think anyone right now who's trying to, to do the day job with the side gig at the same time, they understand that there are some struggles that come along with that. And there's a couple that I wanted to, to dig into this with you because I'm just curious to, from your angle, because I know there's multiple paths to success and everyone makes a mistake of thinking that there's only one way of success when there's in the reality, there's a lot of different ways. But I want to talk about, first of all, how you were finding time on the side to get all the stuff done to, to build a business on the side. Because it's, Again, when you're working a day job, that's at least 40 hours a week, wasn't it? It was probably more. I don't know. Like, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but even the balance on the 40 hours a week with doing the, trying to replace that income on the side is no easy task. How are you finding the time to get that stuff done on the side? Yeah, totally. No, it was, it was a lot. So that's the long and short of it. It's that it was a lot of late nights. It was a lot of weekends. My husband and I had just recently moved. And so we were in a place where we like had a lot of friends, had a like, you know, super full like list of to do's at that point. And so I, I honestly think that that overlap happened at such a good time of like, now, if I were to do that, I think I would feel like I was missing out on a lot of community events and friends lives and family lives and whatever. But we just were at a place where we were new in town. And so kind of had a little bit more wiggle room as you do when you move somewhere. 
So I worked a lot of nights and weekends. I also am a believer in just getting things done efficiently, obviously well also, but like I like to power through tasks. Um, so I worked on my lunch break some and I would also sit at my desk. Like I hope my, my old boss is not listening to this, but you know, I'd sit at my old desk with like my inbox pulled up and then another browser behind it and my headphones in. And I would be like taking a course on Adobe Illustrator while I was like pretending to send emails to, to an internal teammate or something. So it was a lot of, it was a lot of balancing and it was honestly a lot of not balancing well. It was, I was working more than I ever want to work again. Um, but in retrospect, I definitely feel like it was worth it because now I'm in a place where I have a lot of flexibility and love my job and get to make my own schedule and, you know, all of, all that goes with being your own boss, which there's definitely cons as well, but for me, the pros really outweigh it. And so it was a crazy season of lunch breaks and weekends and nights. And I would be working while I was drinking my coffee at 6 a.m. before I went into the office. So it was very, very full, but worth it at the end of it. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And as someone who is, uh, I'm celebrating my 5,000th day of no day job this year, I can say it is absolutely worth it. I encourage anyone listening, when you finally do make that transition out of a day job into your full-time business where you're self-employed, start tracking the amount of days since you're like, put that somewhere on paper the day you left your day job so you can track how many days it's been. Yeah, I want to go do that math now. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Easiest way of just saying days since and then put in the date on Google and it'll tell you how many days it's been. That's how I keep track of that. Back to this, you said you were trying to replace your income on the side before you would be willing to drop the day job because that, that's obviously the responsible way of doing it. That's, that's not the only way of doing it. Some people believe that you have to burn all the ships, as they say, where you leave your day job and you have no other option but to succeed. That's the other way of doing it. You took the safer route, which some would say smarter. Some would, some would say is the, um, the slower way, but it seems like you did it really quick. So I'm not going to fault any of that. Like you obviously did the best path for you, but what was the income number that you had to reach to replace your day job at the time? It was very low. So that's why it happened so quickly. In retrospect, I would have made the number higher because of taxes and expenses and whatever. But I was gonna pay thirty six thousand at my marketing job. So it was like a handful of big clients, or not even that big actually at the time. But it was it did not take that long to get there, which I guess is nice. I'm also like, I can't believe that's what I what I used to get paid. But yeah, that was that was the number. <laughs> yes, I, I my first year in business in twenty two thousand nine was twenty six thousand dollars was my first full year of and it feels huge. Like when you do it, you're like, oh my God, I can't believe I just made this much money like by myself. <laughs> and then just full disclosure, I have had many months that I've made more than that in one month <laughs> since Same. then. So it is, Same. yeah, exactly. So it's, it's crazy to see how fast the change. And for you, it's such a short amount of time. You started less than four years ago or about four years ago now. And to see you going from that to multiple six figures in just four years is crazy. So I want to dig into what you've done since then to make that transition. Yeah, it's been four years of full-time. It's been more like five of being in business. But those, that first year was such a whirlwind. It's like, it's almost hard to count it. But it definitely, it feels so fast when I look back on it. But then it also, I can't even imagine sitting at my old corporate desk anymore. Like it feels like another life. Yeah, so what, before we actually get into some of the tactics you went through, could you talk about what being a business owner has been like compared to having a day job? I know it's not all sunshine and rainbows, but it is worth talking about. When you're making multiple six figures a year, it's not just about the money. And at Six Figure Creative, we, we do talk about money, but we say it's, it's more than just money. We don't do this just for the money. We do it for what 
our business allows us to do outside of work. Yes, we love making money doing what we love, but that doesn't mean we want to do it all the time, all day, every day. What are some of the things that you enjoy as a, as a self-employed freelancer or business owner, whatever you want to consider yourself? We can get into the, to the minutia of that later. What are some of the things that you, you are, that you love that you are able to do as someone who is in charge of their own life now? Yeah, totally. I love what you said of like, yes, we love making money, but that's not the whole goal. And that's something that I really talk a lot about when I mentor other designers and work with other business owners is that the number allows you so much flexibility outside of that. So like in stark comparison to the 36,000 and like working around the clock, trying to then match that. But like we lived in a small town, life was not as expensive, but it, it, that does not go very far in any city. So I would say kind of like in comparison to that, my husband and I moved to Denver six months ago just for fun. We'd always wanted to live out West and my husband's been in school for a year. And so we were able to make that move, buy a house, move across the country, like totally on my income as a business owner, which that's probably one of the like proudest moments that I ha have had because it was so tangible of the houses in Denver cost twice as much as they do where we moved from outside of Atlanta. And so it's, it's very similar in Nashville. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it is. And all of the like surrounding areas outside of Nashville too. It's just like, it's just all been skyrocketing. And so to sell our house and like my company be able to cover the gap of our old house for our new house, like that's just such a tangible moment of, okay, this is, this is working. Like people try to scare you. I feel like so much of like, don't quit your job. It's not worth it. You need security, blah, blah, blah. And I honestly feel like there's more security in my job being responsible for myself. Like throughout COVID, I was able to maintain over six figures and, you know, all of those things. So moving to Denver definitely would be a big one, just something that we really wanted to do and we're able to make happen. There was a day in October where I was like, hey, do you want to go to Iceland tomorrow? And my husband and I booked flights and went to Iceland the next day. And like, that is so my personality. But I felt so trapped sitting at a desk because that's my personality. And when I was on somebody else's you know, like time crunch and expectations and whatever. They're just, I had seven days off, seven days of PTO at my old job. No six days, like no nothing. So on, on a fun level, I would say like moving, traveling, those would be the biggest ones. And then on just a more like personal note, not to take things, you know, dark, but my best friend's dad passed away when I was working at my old job and it wasn't someone who was related to me. So I didn't get any bereavement time for it. And I only had seven days off for the whole year. And it was, I just felt this. I think that was one of my biggest moments of clarity of like, I don't want to be in a job where I can't be present with my community. I'm mean, I can't be present with people that are the closest to me. And then this year we had a loss in my husband's family and being able to take, I took a month off for that. And it was just like something that I would have had to quit a job or just go back to work if I had been working for somebody else. And so there are definitely these like really, really fun pieces of owning a business. But I also think for me, just the stark comparison of, being able to have the time that I want or need to be with people that I love. If there's something that sucks that happens, um, has just been a gift on like on a deeper note. So I would say kind of like both the end, but it is just such a stark contrast to me of like what my life looked like then and what it looks like now. Um, and just kind of being the one to be able to hold the reins of my own life. Like it sounds a little bit cliche, but it, that is absolutely what I've experienced since owning my business. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. I mean, not the, obviously not the dark parts, but being able to just pick right. up and say, I, I can't work right now is awesome. Like that it's the, the reason for it sucks, but the, the reality that you can pick up and say, I'm just going to take some time off for now is awesome. And even more awesome is just saying, you want to go to Iceland tomorrow? <laughs> That's great. Yeah, like, I, yeah. I love that. Um, we had, we had um, an, the author Todd Henry on the podcast a few episodes back, and he's the author of a book called The Accidental Creative. And one of the things he talked about on the episode was 
those creative inputs. As creatives, we have to have constant input to, to keep the creativity up. And as, as people who are getting paid to be creative, that is so important. And I think that over this last minute trip to Iceland had to have recharged you as a creative because I've been there. I was there for a week in 2015 and it's one of the most beautiful countries I've ever seen. Like you cannot take a bad picture in Iceland. It is absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, 100%. I've been four times and I can't get enough. I made my husband go look at a house that was for sale last time we were there. So yeah, it is, it's such a fun place. And yeah, I think it's definitely something where like I design for a living. And so I always want to be creating something that's new and fresh for every brand. And I have such a process behind that. But at the end of the day, some of it does just come down to like my best work is when I'm the most inspired. And so I'm like, gosh, whatever client I worked with right after I got, got the best of me. And so, yeah, I think traveling is just something that I love. And I feel like I would say too, sometimes I work when I travel, which is awesome because no one cares what, what the time zone is. Like I'm the one who's in charge, but sometimes I don't. And I think even that flexibility is really big for me because like this trip was last minute. I had a client I was working with. I didn't restructure my entire you know work month. But I was able to work at 6 p.m. like eating dinner and drinking an espresso martini at a bar um, <laughs> in Iceland instead of sitting at my desk in the United States. So it's fun to kind of even even in the flexibility, like there's more flexibility if you I don't even think it's just if you work for yourself. I think it's if you work for yourself and you manage things well. And I've made a lot of shifts of like I only work with one client at a time right now, whereas when I was working at, at a corporate job, I was managing a million different people that we were talking to all the time. So I feel like it. You just, you can make it what you want to make it, which is really my favorite part about this transition into business ownership. Yes. And I was, I was about to go there. I was like, this is the perfect segue because I think the freelancer in us, the, the, the creative who is less business owner and more freelancer just takes whatever comes their way. They just kind of like go with the flow. And that's a recipe for disaster because one of the hardest parts about being a freelancer or being self-employed is that you have no one staring over your shoulder, telling you what to do and when to do it. You don't have a manager. And if you are not inclined to be a good manager of your own time, this is how you set yourself up to be constantly busy with no real income. And so obviously that's not your struggle because you came right out of the gate swinging with, with moving out of the day job, but we do need to talk about this. And I think it's some, some, some area that you can shine some light, but I don't want to just dive into it. I, I do want to actually kind of continue the story because I think this is the, the most effective way of learning is through story. And I think that one of the areas I actually want to start at with being a business owner is getting clients. And I'm going this direction for, for a couple of reasons. One is this is the, the area most people struggle with. Two, this is an area I talk a lot about is what I call the word of mouth death trap. And that's where people are just waiting around for clients to find them instead of act, actively looking for them. But you didn't fall into the death trap. You were one of the rare, one of the rare few, myself included, 2009. I, I, I made it through the word of mouth death trap, meaning I had all my clients through word of mouth. And I, I got a few clients and I did a great job with those clients and those people referred me more clients. And so I didn't have to actively market my services back in 2009. And it doesn't sound like you did either. So what are some of the things that you did to stand out as a designer? Because even in 2018, like it's just as crowded, if not back then as it is today, like it, it's not, it's not easy to get started as a designer or really any kind of creative freelancer, because I could just go to fiverr.com right now and hire some cheap ass freelancer to design something for me, a logo or a website or whatever for 50 bucks, you know, like how are you standing out? so that you're able to get clients through uh, your network of friends and, and however you're getting clients when you first started out. Yeah, totally. Okay. So I have to say a sidebar first, because I think it will make you laugh. I just worked with a client who like, you know, sometimes there are clients who don't work out. It's rare at this point in my business, but it still happens. And this client's boyfriend left me a Google review. Like I did not know the name, had never worked with him and basically said, go to Fiverr instead of working with Lydia. And I was like, 
Honestly, I'll take that as a compliment because you go to Fiverr, you knock yourself out. That is not my competition. So it made me laugh that you just referenced that because I was like, by all means, yes. like you lead the way. But yeah, so as far as getting clients, I think there's a mindset thing here at play a little bit. And like, I feel hesitant sometimes to use that word because I think it can sound inauthentic. Um, but I do think like getting clients to me is sometimes all people are focusing on. And if that's all you're focusing on, it seems like desperate and annoying and nobody wants to work with you. You know, like I think, of course we have to focus on it, but there, there is a mindset shift that I think can make it more accessible. And so I honestly like had this subconscious mindset shift of like, I don't really need clients. Like they'll come to me if they want to come to me because I already had a job. Like I was not banking on that income. And so I think it allowed me to market what I do really naturally. I could post work on Instagram as I wanted to. I didn't feel the pressure of keeping up with the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. So yeah, it was very word of mouth. I also feel like I come from a pretty like creative circle of people of just like a lot of people that I know are, I mean, as you associate with people, often they're similarly minded. Like I also love to connect with people who are super different than me, but I feel like my network of people is a lot of people who also were side hustling at this time. They were also miserable in their jobs. And so I think I just got really lucky with the timing of like what I was doing was something that my word of mouth network needed, which isn't always true. And I would say I am my target audience. I also don't think that's true of every business owner. And so I think it was just very natural to me. Like I wish I had a super great like step-by-step thing that I could spell out for you and for listeners right now. Um, But I feel like it really was just supernatural. But then from there, there was this transition point of like getting people who knew me to work with me. They were paying me. I mean, my first website, I charged $200. Like that is not going to make multi six figures, you know? No, 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 Um, (laughs) no, not at all. And I divide that out and I'm like, oh my God, I was getting paid like 20 cents an hour. Like it's not even minimum wage. So that was the first word of mouth, but I think then it evolved enough that it somehow word of mouth is still working well for me, but there was like kind of an in-between period where that was not as successful because my pricing had changed so much and my services and my structure, like I was working with people who wanted to run a serious business instead of like a blogger who was also working at a bank, which was an awesome client that I worked with when I first started out. But that was the $200 website. Like that's not going to sustain my business. And it's because that client wasn't, they weren't looking to build a business. Like I would have never told her she should invest $20,000 in a website because it's not going to bring her $20,000 back. So then there was kind of this like dead spell where I was getting like 90% of my clients from Instagram, just posting and hashtags. And maybe Instagram stories were around when I first started, but definitely reels weren't. The algorithm was different. Like I don't feel like it was as competitive of a Space, it was much easier to just like naturally stumble upon people. So it, it was kind of like word of mouth to really heavy Instagram. And now it's pretty 50 50 because the clients who work with us experience, I mean, they're paying us 10 to $20,000 for our projects and they're experiencing me and my team in a way that they love and they want to refer other people. But it's not a personal network anymore, whereas it was like personal before and now it's more professional. So it's interesting to have watched it kind of transition. But I also would say kind of the other like nugget of maybe advice I would offer is that I, I really was not afraid to talk about what I did. Once I decided this is what I want to do, I stopped saying I'm a freelancer. I stopped saying I'm a graphic designer. And I started saying I'm a strategist. I'm a business owner. 
my clients get great results. Like they're seeing an ROI on this investment. And I wasn't afraid to tell friends that. Like, I feel like I hear a lot of people complain that their friends are their worst clients or their friends' friends are their worst clients. But my friends were not referring me to people who were not ready to take their business seriously because I wasn't giving them the information to think that that's how it worked. So I don't know if that's helpful to kind of hear like the journey along the way. But um, but yeah, it definitely has been something that has kind of like ebbed and flowed by season where clients are coming to me from. So there's a, a famous quote by a pretty famous photographer named Chase Jarvis. I believe that's his name. I could be butchering it. I'm not a photographer. Sorry if I butchered this. And he says, your $500 client will never be your $5,000 client. And I think that's kind of what you experienced in that dead spell between working with your like friends, family, local network, and then trying to make that leap from people that already know you, like you, trust you to now strangers are hiring you. This is the, this is the thing that holds up freelancers more than anything else is making that transition. And it's no wonder there's a dead spell because that's a, that's a tough thing to do. And I can guarantee you, you would not be charging 10 to 20 grand for what you're doing for a project if you were still working with just your circle of people around you because, let me take that back, I wouldn't guarantee it. I would say you'd struggle to find a steady supply of clients that would pay those rates if it's just your your circle of people. And and I'd like to sit in this area for a minute because I feel like so many of our listeners are stuck in the nickel and dime rates area because they haven't made that transition yet. And I think the most important part about that transition is that you were finally shifting to an area that your clients had like a budget for stuff. And I think this is an area so many people completely ignore. And, and I'm, I'm talking to our core audience back from the six-figure home studio days where they're working with broke bands. <laughs> they're working with broke musicians who have no real aspirations for what they're trying to do. They have no real direction they're going. They're just wanting to make music. And I, I'm sorry, but that's not going to pay the bills. And for anyone else who's in another creative field, if you're working with broke clients, you're going to be broke too. It's, there's, there's just no way around it. And I think, Lydia, you know this just naturally that your clients are all, I guess, businesses. Are they all businesses or people that are going to have an ROI on what they pay you for? Yeah, they are. I would say most of them at this point are businesses that have a couple of employees, which doesn't feel like a necessity at all. But it is, it's interesting to watch my audience shift. So like at this point, most of the people that we're working with, there will be an owner of the company, but then we'll be working with like a studio manager or somebody else that's the direct contact for the project. Occasionally they're not occasionally. So I would say like 30 to 40% of clients are a one person business, but they are, they're not 22. They're not doing this for fun. They're not doing this out of their parents' basement. They are saying, I'm doing this. Um, Like one of my favorite clients works for Amex full time and makes great money and is starting a business, but has the secure, like the job security to decide when they're ready to quit their job. And start doing this. You know what I mean? Like they're they're established in their careers. And so that's what I would say. It's like, it's almost just like a stage of life thing. Like somebody can start a business in a way that's kind of scrappy when they're 35 and it's going to have a way different budget than the people who start their business when they're 22. And I was working with a lot of photographers at first. And I feel like so many photographers do that right out of school. $5,000 feels like all the money in the world to them. And so they're never going to pay you that much. And my prices were way higher than that. Or as they, as my business grew, they evolved to get to that point. So I would say it's almost like establishing career paths, even if that career path is going to do a 180 with their business. So like the bands, if it's people who have gotten back together after performing a while ago, but they're ready to take it seriously and they're all putting money behind it, like an energy, it's not just money. It's like all that comes with that. That is so different than somebody who's just doing this for fun to see where it goes. Cause that's not, that's not going to pay the bills. Like you said. <laughs> 
Yeah. So can you talk just quickly about on Instagram, what are some of the things that you were doing to attract that kind of higher tier, the upper echelon of clients to get out of just the, 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 so, the social circle you were surrounding yourself with? You said that a lot of your success early on was all Instagram. Now it's kind of split. What were some of the things that you have found to be successful on Instagram as a designer trying to stand out and get those better clients? Yeah, totally. So I think people use Instagram in a couple of different ways. And the first one that I feel like is people go to your feed to look at your work to look at how legit you are to see what type of company you are what you value and so even if you get 10 likes on a feed post if somebody uses instagram as a search engine and your feed looks great and it's telling the story of your business it's doing its job so i would say the first thing that i tried to do was really build my grid to represent my work and the quality of my work so i was not afraid to post like seven feed graphics of the same project i don't care if the people that are following me get bored because to me that's not what the feed posts are for. The feed posts are for those new people. And then on stories, I would try to like channel a lot of engagement. So I was so embarrassed and like intimidated at first to talk on Instagram stories, especially because like if you're one of those people that's in that freelance business owner kind of like stage, it's all your friends who are following you. And like, I don't want my mom. She is not my target audience. I adore my mom. I don't want her to be the only person that's engaging. And same thing with like, with friends, like I was a mentor to some high school kids and they thought it was so fun to comment on my Instagram posts. And I would always delete them because I was like, I, this is not what I want. Like, thanks for being sweet, but this is not it. So, um, I was so intimidated to post on stories because I, it just was, it felt too personal, but I just pushed through and made myself do it. And I actually like removed a lot of followers of people that I knew, which is funny because I was just like, thanks for supporting me. You can do it in a different way. I need to take this seriously. And this is causing me like imposter syndrome. So stories I did like polls and stuff on stories like asking questions and like to this day some of the things that people engage with the most are like stupid things like I posted like a random um poll on my Instagram story the other day I was like do you pee in the shower yes or get or no and I'm lying <laughs> and like I got so much engagement <laughs> from it and it's just so funny because it has nothing to do with design and like for some brands that might feel unprofessional and that that's not everyone's brand but I have been very personal on my Instagram all along. And so people are like totally willing to engage with something like that. So I don't even think it always has to do exactly with your business as long as you're directing people there. And I would say the last thing would be like engaging with other brands. So one of the first big brands that I worked with, I reached out to them. They had like 8,000 followers at the time. Now they have like 40 and they just were this small little brand that had a bad logo, but had great potential. And I was like, I, sent them a DM, started engaging with them so that they would hopefully recognize me. And then I sent them a DM and was like, Hey, I think there's a lot of potential here. I'd love to work with you guys and basically pitch myself and then hired me. And so I think kind of a combination of those three things of like building your feed posts, engaging on stories and being personal, whatever that looks like for you as a brand, and then not being afraid of like cold pitching people. I don't think that 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 can be desperate, but it doesn't have to be. And so I, I really got some great responses from that by doing it in a way that was genuine and not salesy feeling. Yes. Those are all great. And this is, this is some, I feel like our audience is having some good aha moments at this point. As long as they keep the, the pee shower polls to a minimum and, and not be too unprofessional to and they, <laughs> they blend it, they blend it. You got to have the pro and, exactly. and make sure it matches your brand. Yeah. Don't just, don't just rip off Lydia. So you, you, you talked about that transition point from freelancer to business owner. And I feel like a good, a good place to also talk about this transition is in pricing. I feel like so many of our listeners are stuck in the perpetual freelancing pricing, which is like bottom of the barrel, 
competing with Fiverr or their local competitors, the couple hundred bucks here and there, the nickel and dime projects. How did you get the confidence to charge 10 and 20 grand for a project? As a designer, where so many people are struggling to even have the confidence to charge a 500 or a thousand. Yeah. Yeah. Great question. Um, So I'll say one of the biggest things for me was realizing that a lot more people could say no to me if my prices were higher and I would still make the same thing. So like literally just thinking about it logically, you don't need as many clients if your prices are higher. And so I think I was not really afraid of people telling me no. And I think so often people, if you're making $500, you need every flipping client that comes your way because that's the only way you can pay your bills. Whereas if you book one $20,000 project, you could do two of those a year. And I, I would be able to have the same take-home salary that I was at my old job. Like if I wanted to restructure my business and work one day a week, I mean, I could, I could keep that salary matched. And so I think just like literally putting numbers on paper, I'm a very visual person. And so getting out a notebook and being like, this is what I always tell people to do. Getting out a notebook and being like, what do I want to make in a year? So the first time I did this, I was like, I want my business to make $100,000. And then I said, okay, how many clients do I want to work with? And I was like, I think I want to work with like 10 to 12. So just for like easy numbers, I was like, if I need to work, if I want to make $100,000 a year, work with 10 clients, I need $10,000 a client. And so I just had a very tangible goal that I was seeking out. And I could have, I mean, hundreds of people say no for a $100 project to, to end up to be that. And so I think putting numbers on paper, making a very specific goal. And the other thing I realized is that there is so often like a respect that comes to prices being higher. Like I, I have an example of a couple of different web developers that I've worked with and there's a really high price one, a middle one and a low price one. And depending on the project, I definitely recommend different ones. The low price developer, I do not like the experience of that partnership um, near as much as I do the high touch one. And so at this point, I'm willing to pay for the high price one every single time. I recommend it to my clients. Like that is worth it to me. And I'm, I think I just have this moment of like, gosh, if I view it that way, I can't be the only one. And then I honestly just kind of tried it. And I feel like another thing that I always recommend to people, you can always walk back down. You cannot go back up. So like my my first big client, big I say is like in the the multiple, I would even say like over 5,000. The first big client, I think I said the price was like 8,500 and their their budget was like 6,000, which first of all, I've realized that nobody's budget is what they say it is. They have no idea what they're talking about. You tell them what they, what they need and often they're willing to pay for it. But it also was something where I was, they were like, gosh, like, let me think about it. I was really hoping to stay closer to 6,000. And I was like, okay, what about 7,500? Like I can meet you in the middle. This is a newer service for me. I'm willing to flex with you. That's not something that I do anymore as an established business owner, but like, it is so much easier to discount than it is to try to raise those prices later. And I think oftentimes people are scared of discounting. And I wouldn't like go out here yelling left and right to discount everything. But at least when you're discounting, somebody still knows the main price so they can view the value as what you're valuing it at. Whereas if you just start at 6,000, they're going to go tell their friends that it's 6,000 or they're going to go tell their friends it's 500. If you start at 10 and you give them 25% off, they're going to tell their friends it was $10,000. And then if their friend comes to you, you charge the 10000 So it was something where I, I definitely did it gradually. Like, I mean, at one point I was charging 10000 flat for like a flat repricing, nothing was custom for a brand and a website. And it felt like the biggest thing in the world to me. And now that's what strategy costs. You know what I mean? Like it is, it is so gradual, but I think all of those kind of like Again, just almost like perspective shifts over time and putting numbers on paper. Those were the most helpful things for me 
And then honestly realizing like, oh my God, I made minimum wage on some of these projects, like less than. So I would encourage anybody who feels like they're not getting paid well, track your hours and divide it out by the project at the end of the day. You should not be making what somebody at McDonald's is making. Like that's, that's not why you're doing this. Like if you need to go get a job at McDonald's, go get a job at McDonald's, but don't, do you know what I'm saying? Like there's no shame in having a low paying job. It sucks that sometimes that's just the way that it is. But if you are setting your pricing, it should not be competing with a paycheck at a fast food place. So I think just like figuring that out for me, I was like, gosh, I, this can go so much more. This can stretch so much further. Like I am a better, my clients like working with me more if they're paying me more because I have more energy to do this well. I can give more. I can spend time with people that I care about more. Like it, it is so much bigger than that pricing. And the last thing I'll say on this is that I've had so many clients thank me for the pricing because they took themselves seriously on a new level when they made an investment that was that big. And then they make more money because it gives them a newfound confidence. So it really is such a domino effect that's been really cool to see and hear from clients. So there's a, there's a quote that's helped me a lot when, when battling price increases in services that I offer. And the quote is, when people pay, they pay attention. And I think you've experienced that yourself where now that you're charging more, people are taking what you're doing way more seriously and they're seeing more success because they have to get an ROI on as much as they're paying you or else they feel like they wasted their money, which means your work gets seen and experienced by more people, which helps you as the freelancer or I guess the business owner. I can't use the word freelancer with you. No, no, you totally can. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. I love that quote. Before we get into the podcast today, let me tell you a little something crazy about myself. I'm actually a psychic and I'm going to prove it to you. You and I, we've probably never met, but I bet I can describe your business better than you can. Here's what my crystal ball says. You probably have no idea how to get clients other than waiting around for referrals and word of mouth. You're stuck in a perpetual cycle of feast or famine. So you have wild income swings from month to month. You're charging way less than you should and you know it, but you don't do anything about it. You feel like you have a million things you could be doing in your business and you have no idea what you should be focusing on. And you have tons of little half-built bridges leading to nowhere because you've jumped from thing to thing to thing as a dabbler. Am I right? Does this sound eerily similar to you? That's because I've been in your shoes and I've worked with thousands of freelancers who've also been there. So I'm not a psychic. My crystal ball is not real. I just have a really clear understanding of what freelancers are facing today. And if I can predict your problems, you can bet I actually have a solution to these problems. It's called client acquisition. We talk about this all the time on the podcast, but for some reason, freelancers still haven't really figured this out yet. This is why I created Clients by Design Coaching. It's a truly unique coaching program that helps you build your own client acquisition machine so you can break out of this feast or famine cycle that most freelancers never escape. So here's how our approach is unique. First, we do a deep dive on your business, we figure out what's missing, and we give you a complete marketing roadmap right from the start. So no more dabbling, no more guesswork, just a clear path to getting more clients. You always know what your next step is because we actually assign specific tasks to you. So instead of feeling overwhelmed, instead of feeling scattered, you can just focus on your next step. That's it. We give you unlimited feedback on everything you do so you can feel confident that every single step you're taking is the right one. And we hold you accountable, not by nagging you, but just by genuinely supporting and cheering you on every step of the way. If you're behind on any steps we've assigned to you, we'll proactively reach out and see how we can help. Clients by Design is not a course. We look at it like a partnership. We'll always show up. We'll always give you what you need, but you have to be willing to put in the work. This program is not for everyone, and that is okay. As of right now, I just checked the numbers. We've only approved about 25% of the applicants we've gotten so far, and that's because we are selective. We only accept your application if we believe we can truly help you. So if you're ready to end your feast or famine cycle and build a client acquisition machine, you can apply for Clients by Design by going to sixfigurecreative.com slash coach. 
That's the number six, figurecreative.com slash coach. Now here's our show. Yeah, so I want to go back to something. You, you, you mentioned you worked with a developer who is just another form of creative freelancer. They're creating awesome stuff with code. And you have a low price, a mid price, and a high price. And you said you would rather work with a high price because the experience is better. And I think this is one of the areas that you excel in. I've never hired you, Lydia, but I just have a feeling <laughs> that the experience you provide is in the level that you're charging. And, and, there's a, and it's one of those like, do you charge more first and then provide an amazing experience or do you provide an amazing experience and earn peanuts in order to eventually charge more? And I think you've kind of probably worked your way up there, but I just want to want you to talk on this a bit because the experience you provide is likely a high end, high tier, high dollar experience. It feels that way. And you can provide that because of what you're charging. You have more money that you can put towards that project. You have more time you can put towards it. You can actually build a team out to do some of these things to take your way, yourself away from some of those tedious tasks you don't want to do. So I'd love for you to talk about how you've built out the experience of delivering what people are paying you for um, as a business owner. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is one of my favorite things to talk about because I do feel like you cannot just like throw a number out there and expect somebody to pay it. If you're not going to match that with what you're delivering. And I actually had a situation, I teach a course to other designers that's completely focused on process. And one of the things that I provide um, is email templates that I actually worked on with Green Chair Stories. She's who wrote all of them. Um, And I had a student who sent one of our email templates to a client, but the experience did not match what she was communicating in that moment. And it was just such a great learning opportunity, I think, for this student, as it was for me, of like, okay, tried and true, these do not work without the process to back it up. And they work so well for me because my client trusts my process. But if you do not have that experience to match what you're communicating, like, I think that's honestly the worst thing that you can do as a business owner, a freelancer, whatever you want to call yourself when you're working with clients. Like, it's an expectations thing. Like, clients need to know when they're going to hear from you, what they're going to get from you, what it's going to be like. And if it's just like you're responding from your Gmail account from time to time, like, you can't, you can't put a price tag on that. That's going to pay you a great salary. So all of that to say, I feel like I kind of started reverse, but I think I've seen it not work. Like I have seen what works so well for me, not work for someone else because they just tried to kind of slap a bandaid on it rather than actually executing that process. And so organization and communication are both really important to me. And I feel like a lot of creatives suck at that because we are creative minded people. And oftentimes those things don't go together. I think I'm sort of in the middle. So there was a lot that I could do for myself for a long time before I now have a studio manager before hiring a studio manager. But like, I suck at accounting. So that was the first thing I outsourced. So I would say if you're bad at a process, like as soon as you can hire someone to help you because that is the biggest pivot piece, I think in raising your prices. And then just kind of on a more like, on the ground, what that has to look like for me is when a client, I have a lot of like policies that are non-negotiable to me. So like deposits and contracts, like you can get yourself screwed over so fast if you do not have those logistics set up. And then de- like delivery dates for me are also a non-negotiable. Like I feel like creatives have such a bad rap for like never delivering anything on time. And we stick to our timelines and I can say confidently to clients, we've never missed a deadline. And they trust that because then we deliver and then they hear from other people and then they write us a review on Google and somebody else sees it. And if one client has a bad experience and they write about it, like that can really mess you up. So I think doing the best that you can to make sure that what the client thinks they're getting is actually what they're getting. And I think some of that too is like a fear-based mindset that you have to kick to the curb of like thinking that every client needs to work with you. And so if a client wants something that you've never done before, there's no shame in learning it, but like, 
that's a time where I would say, hey, I've not done this before. I'm happy to do this for you. I actually feel really excited about it. But like, I need to set clear expectations for you of what this is going to look like. Or like when a client pays their deposit and signs their contract, I send an email that has every single date of what they're going to get in their project. And those are actually the templates that Green Chair Story sells. So that's a plug for her email templates. But it will say, on this date, we'll begin strategy. On this date, we'll begin design. On this date, you'll get your final deliverables. On this date, we'll circle back to this. Like everything is clearly outlined. And then another just kind of like small little thing that I like to do is sometimes with big projects, like of recording an album, for example, I would imagine there's a, there can be a lag time of like how often you're communicating. So I set an expectation for like, even if we have nothing to say, I follow up with our clients on Fridays and just say, hey, how's it going? We're wrapping up the week. We're still working on your project or we'll, we're still waiting on so-and-so for this or we're waiting on you or whatever it is, but they know that they're going to hear from me at least once a week or if that's once a month or whatever it is, like setting something that you're going to stick to and they're going to stick to. I really believe that that's been all of the difference in my pricing because people, they don't have to chase me. That's not their job. They're hiring us to take something off of their plate and to do it really well. And so we are committed to delivering on that. And and there's a price tag that we get to charge for that work. Yeah. So I, I love that you, you said something earlier in all of that. You said you've never missed a deadline. And I, I feel like very few <laughs> listeners can say that they, they've never missed a deadline before. We actually, we also had the Obedient Agency, which is like a humor-focused copywriting agency. Oh, I have seen their stuff. Do they do like naming and stuff? Yes, 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 yes. I they actually work with, work with Rachel on her yes, podcast. That's name. why yes. I've seen it. Yep. <laughs> yes. So she came on the show and she talked about her agency and, and they're doing incredible things. They're working with big brands, doing some really awesome, funny stuff. Episode 177, you actually should go back and listen to that episode. Um, the episode's called Using the Power of Humor to Grow Your Business. One of the things she said is that they've also never missed a deadline for their agency before. And they're is just as meticulous about the onboarding process and making sure all of the delivery dates are laid out ahead of time. Truth be told, I can work on this. Like this is something that I think everyone should have. And I'd love for you to, t- to talk about as we wrap this up. I know we've, you've got a... <laughs> Funny enough, you, you booked another interview today because <laughs> you just love to, you're, you like to, like most business owners, you like to batch things, which is a smart way of doing it. What tools are you using to help with this process? Because it's one thing to just figure out a, a delivery date and, and try to hit that date, but another one to just keep up with it all and make sure you're hitting those dates. Like what tools are you using to map all that stuff out so that you're not dropping the ball constantly? Because this is something that I feel like anyone listening right now is thinking like, I would love to just give dates in the future. But what if the client delays something? What if I have a thing that gets in the way? How do I remember the dates? Like I have a bunch of things I'm juggling right now. And maybe I have a day job that I'm trying to transition out of. So like, how am I supposed to hit dates with all that? And you know, like, I'm just trying to speak for the audience here. What, what are you, what you doing? Yeah. Yeah. So I would say the biggest on a like bigger level picture, I only work with one client at a time, which is not possible in every single business. And this actually also is something that I kind of adapted for Rachel at Green Chair, but both of us only work with one client at a time. And I love that. Yeah. And it, and our processes are very different. Our clients are very different. Like there's really not that much that our businesses have in common anymore on at surface level, but that is something that I can at least speak for me. Like it has changed my life and it's, it's so much easier to meet a deadline if I only have one deadline to manage. Um, again, I know that's not possible for every creative industry, but for design, it's worked really well. You also, that was an incentive for me to raise my prices because if I was only going to work with one client at a time, I had to charge more like immediately. So one client at a time, I do not let clients miss, miss deadlines. Like it is, I don't miss deadlines and they don't miss deadlines. And if they miss a deadline, they, the project, they have to figure it out at a different point. And I try to work with clients because like, Obviously, from time to time, it happens. But 
from a design perspective, the biggest thing I hear designers complain about is web copy. So like if a client is writing their own copy or getting their own photographs done, if they're late, you can't start the website. Well, I tell our clients on the phone before they've even signed anything, booked anything, like this is due on this date and there is no wiggle room. And then if they miss it, we have late fees or we'll reschedule the entire project and they have to pay for that because that's time in our schedule. And I think my clients, so it's a mutual respect. Like my clients trust that I'm going to deliver on time. And so they deliver on time. Like it's not something that they are like, gosh, she's such a stickler. Like this sucks. It's really something that they lean into and appreciate. And I've had clients before that were like, we put this off. We're so sorry. We're going to work all night. And I'm like, that sucks, but I'm not going to let you out of it. Like I don't, I can't offer you something different because you knew the expectation and this is what I need to get started. So clients have to meet deadlines just as much as we do. So that's not really an issue. And then the one client at a time. The other thing is I do build in buffer time. So I think a lot of times people will hear a client say, I need this on this date. And they'll just say, okay, instead of saying, well, here's my timeline. Like, I think that's honestly one of the biggest differences between a freelancer and a business owner is with a freelancer, like your client is really more positioned as the boss with a business owner. Like if they're hiring me as an agency and I am in charge, not them. And I want it to be a partnership but we're all better for it if it's running based on a process that we know it's their first time doing this. It's my million. So I should be the one that's leading it, you know? So I would say those are more the like overarching things. And then just on a like more logistical standpoint, I use HoneyBook for invoicing and like client management. It has like all of our files in one place. It has all of our contracts in one place, payments, all that. That's worked super well for me. And then my most recent find that is I like, I think my favorite thing of 2021 is Basecamp. I used to use Asana and I loved it. And I used the free version of Asana. So like, and it was awesome. I used it for years. I never needed to upgrade. So for anybody who doesn't have a big budget right now, I would 1000% recommend Asana. Basecamp is more expensive, but it basically combines like Google Docs, Google Sheets, Notion. What's the other one I just said? <laughs> Asana, like, et cetera. It's all in one place. And so it has all of our timelines. It has every single step. So the client can see our timeline and we can also. So there's really no excuses for anybody to get behind. There's also like a chat room in there, which I love because you don't have to always start an email of like, hey, Brian, I hope you're having a great Tuesday, like blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? You can just kind of like get to the point and ask for quick information. So Basecamp is my like number one thing that I love. Um, and it is a little more expensive. I think it's like $100 a month or something, but now it sounds like I'm advertising. I have no anything for them. I just love it. But I think it doesn't matter what your system is. Oh, so if anyone's been listening to this podcast, they know that I've been pushing ClickUp like nonstop this whole year. So like mm-hmm. you can pitch away because this, again, there's, we've got no incentive <laughs> other than to help our audience. So you can, you can pitch away because it's helping your business. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I would say like, I've heard great things about ClickUp. I've heard great things about MondayGood.com. I love Asana. People have Trello. Like it literally does not matter what the system is. It just needs to be something that works well. And that you're going to stick to. Like, I know that I suck at remembering things. And so I need a system. Like, I also have a paper calendar at my desk at all times. And I need both of them. And then I also have everything synced to my phone calendar. Like, it's, it really isn't about three places. And I know that that's what I need to work well. Some people, whiteboard works well. Like, I don't think it matters what it is. It just has to be something that works. And I think the other thing... A lot of people on bigger creative projects, regardless of the industry, will have a start date and a finish date. I find when you're working with a client, you really need those benchmark dates in the middle because it's not just up to you. You almost always need something from the client also. And so I think 
breaking, I break it up into phases. So we have like a strategy or like a vision casting phase, a strategy phase, a visual identity phase, a web design phase, a print phase, like blah, blah, blah. And those phases all have their own timelines inside of the big timeline. And that's been really, really, really helpful um, because clients know what their deadlines all are based on those phases. And then it's just very straightforward. So I think keeping it simple, but in a way that like is how your personal brain works is has been the most important thing to me because like there are other designers who Basecamp would never work for them. They would rather use it all on paper. Like it literally doesn't matter. It just needs to be a system. And then I use a lot of automations like HoneyBook has automations, Basecamp has automations. You can automate your email. Like I schedule those reminders, like those Friday check-ins go out to clients without me having to do them. So I don't necessarily have to remember it. And if a client needs something, they'll respond and then I'll get a notification. I think it takes some trial and error, but I think I just think a system, you just need a system and it, it really, it's like the sky's the limit for what it can be. It just has to work and then you have to commit and stick to it. Yes. Yeah, so I think for anyone listening right now who has pretty much nothing in place, which is a lot of our listeners, just start somewhere. It can be a free Asana account. It can be a free ClickUp account. You can dive right into a paid Basecamp account if you wanted. Like it doesn't matter. Your first version of this doesn't have to be what Lydia has for her businesses. Like she has put time, effort, and energy building this over a long period of time. And especially if you're newer, you don't even fully understand your own process because a lot of times you're figuring out what is going to work best. So just start with something and slowly add on to it over time. But I think the most important part about this is if you put a deadline in there for your client that the project timeline overall, the overall project timeline depends on, then you have to stick to that. And there has to be some sort of penalty associated with it. And you have to be willing to, to put your foot down. And I think that you, Lydia, you talked about that. You have, um, you have late fees or some sort of fees associated with missed due dates, potential reschedules of the entire project, um, which I've had to do in my past where like the client will have not finish in time. And so we'll have to put it six months into the future because that's the only date in my calendar that's available. And I think a lot of people, what they do is they just bend over backwards and say, you know what? It's not a big deal. I'll, I'll let this slide this time, but don't worry about it. And that only hurts you and your future projects and all your other clients. So I think that's a huge part. Yeah, I think another big thing that I do is I require everything before we start. So like when client or when designers and other creatives are like, well, we can start blah, blah, blah. Like there's, that's a bigger incentive to my clients than the late fees. Like I don't charge late fees hardly ever because our clients just don't miss deadlines because they want the project done. Like they hired you because they want to work with you. And so we will not start until we have what we need in hand. And I think that really can apply to any industry and goes a really, really long way. Yeah. And, and the other thing is you communicate those deadlines before they've ever signed on. So they agreed to it before they've even handed over the cash. So they cannot say something after that because you've over-communicated. Now, one more thing about Basecamp or whatever project management you prefer, you can insert any anyone here. Are you using a lot of templates in there? So like when you get a new cl- a client, you just load up a template and it has a lot of this stuff pre-laid out ahead of time to save time? Or are you setting up projects custom every single time? So to be honest, I have a phenomenal studio manager and she does all of it. And I don't even know. I said, I want to switch to Basecamp. And then the next thing I knew we were on Basecamp. And that is totally where I'm at at this point in business. That is, that is not how it used to go, but she is phenomenal. And so she set it up. So I think we have templates in the back end, but all of my projects at this point are pretty custom. When I was working with, I worked with photographers only a long time ago. And I feel like most photographers need something similar. So there was a little bit more of like a way to be templated and like lottery pricing and blah, blah, blah. And at this point we work with people that are all over the place in terms of what they do. And it's more their values that kind of unite like our niche and our focus at Telltale. And so I think we start with a template, but like it, re- it does require some like heavy customization um, just because every project is so different. 
So like you definitely have to buy into the fact that that's what you're doing. But like when a client signs and pays the contract, that's when we set them up. Even if we're not starting the project for like two or three months. So it's just something that like, it's just the first thing we do and we don't skip it. Like I, in my mind, the project is not booked until it's a base scam because that's the system that I like <laughs> anchor my life on. And I'll say too, like a really easy way to do this would just be to use your calendar on your phone. Like if you are going to dinner and you see that you have a deadline the next day, you know that you need to wake up the next day and hit the ground running. And so our big benchmarks just go in. I have like a separate work calendar, but it all, you know, syncs to my phone. So our big benchmarks are in there so that I literally see it when I'm like checking the weather in the morning. Um, and it's, it's not like I only have to log into Basecamp to get this notification. It's right in front of me. So that's a, that's an easy and free way to just get started on a small scale. And then you build in buffer time. If you think the deadline is going to be April 1st, make it April 15th. I buffer everything by about two weeks because our clients are obsessed with the fact that we almost always launch early, but they're never disappointed if we launch on time because that's the expectation that's been set. So I would say buffer time in a calendar is really all you need to get started on a budget. And I know this is not sexy stuff to hear. Like this is like borderline yeah. <laughs> boring to talk about, but it is so incredibly necessary to, to, to just bring this back out to our audience. Like if you're stuck in the, in the land of like nickel and dime pricing, it's probably because you don't have this stuff set up. And, and the, the, the sucky part is these boring things, you have to have them. If you want to charge these $10,000, dollars $50,000 or more projects, you have to have, you have to take this seriously. And this is part of kind of the overarching theme of this episode, which is transitioning from just a simple, basic freelancer to a full-blown business owner to the point where Lydia is, where you're like, you know, to be honest, I don't even know because my <laughs> studio manager handles that. Like that's goals. Like that's what I think everyone needs to strive towards is having someone on their team who can fill in the gaps of their skill set to the point where you don't even know how your business runs because you're so detached from that part of it because they handle it. They own it. They are amazing at it. Better than you could ever be. Not saying you couldn't be great at no, it. No, no. You're, you're correct. Your yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so just, just to kind of wrap this episode up, um, unfortunately, there, I guess so much more I wanted to talk to you about, but you've got your other interview we got to get you to. Where can our audience go to connect with you or where do you want them to go to find out more about what you're doing or, or whatever? Like what, what, what's the next step for people listening right now that like what you have to say? Totally. So my agency is telltaledesign.co. Um, I also have a separate platform that right now is mostly catered towards designers, but I do business mentoring and stuff through there. And that's LydiaKerr.co, K-E-R-R. And it is, the website is in the work, so it's not currently up. But I have two separate Instagram accounts. One that's agency, it's the same handle, Telltale Design Co. And then the other, that's Lydia Kerr. And that's where I do more talk about mentoring and pricing and kind of everything that we've talked about today. So um, yeah, would love to connect with whoever is listening and joining in. We'll have all of that on our show notes at sixfigurecreative.com slash 193. And all the links will be there for anyone who wants to find your Instagram accounts or your website. So thank you so much for coming on here, Lydia. This is a blast. Yeah, you too. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. I loved it. <laughs>